This morning's scripture reading is from 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, and that's on page 1855 in the Pew Bible. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures, to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, Be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Radhika. Appreciate your reading. This Sunday, we are concluding um, our series on uh, Second Peter. Uh, is that my friend Ernest back there? Is that, oh, he's hiding. That's all right, Ernest. I'm going to get you anyway. You can't hide from me. Um, um, we're concluding our series on Second Peter, where uh, uh, Peter has been reminding the church um, to live, that God has given us everything to live a holy, precious, useful life before him with the spirit and the word. And then he's been warning against false teachers that they can be recognized by their greed, their pride, and their lust. And he has warned us against uh, scoffers, those who make fun of the fact that God is patient, right? And they take their patience to mean that he doesn't mean what he says in relation to his return, in relation to his intention to judge the ungodly and to bless the godly. So he's, so he's given us this warning um, and admonition to become more and more uh, like him as we wait for his return. And this Sunday, we're gonna conclude um, this particular series by um, explaining the last portion of Peter's 
uh, writings to us. Um, this uh, Thursday night in theaters across the Amer America uh, was seen a film, The Case for Christ, by uh, Lee Strobel. Really interesting story. Lee Strobel was a Chicago Tribune reporter, educated in journalism at the University of Missouri, educated in law at Yale Law School, and was a reporter in the 70s and early 80s, an, an avowed uh, atheist whose whole world turned around when his wife, Leslie, came to faith in Jesus Christ. And so Lee was a studied atheist. He, by conscience, he had studied and said, I simply cannot believe in a God that I can't see, where there's no real evidence, he thought, for his existence in the past. It's all mythology. And so when he, uh, mar before he married his wife, at, while he was married, avowed atheist. And then his wife comes to Christ at the young Willow Creek Church in Chicagoland. And his whole world changes, changes. And what happens is, once his wife comes to Christ, he begins to see the, the, these changes in her that startle him. She be, he begins to see that she loves him in a way that was even stronger than before. She, he begins to see that there's certain things that she won't, doesn't say or do that, that demonstrate that she really believes in Jesus and the call to holiness. In fact, he says it like this. Leslie stunned me in the autumn of 1979 by announcing that she became a, had become a Christian. I rolled my eyes and braced for the worst, feeling like the, the victim of a bait-and-switch scam. I had married one Leslie, the fun Leslie, the carefree Leslie, the risk-taking Leslie, and now I feared she was going to turn into some sort of sexually repressed prude who would trade upper, our upperly mobile lifestyle for all-night prayer vigils and volunteer work in grimy soup kitchens. It doesn't make Christianity look very good at all, does it? Instead, he says, I was pleasantly surprised, even fascinated by the fundamental changes in her character, her integrity, and her personal confidence. Eventually, I wanted to get to the bottom of what was prompting these subtle but significant shifts in my wife's attitudes, so I launched an all-out investigation into the facts surrounding the case for Christianity. Now, this was an investigative journalist educated at the University of Missouri, considered probably the best journalism school. I think Northwestern is the best, but I'm biased. But anyway, considered the best one, and Yale Law School. He used all of his investigative skills. Setting aside my self-interest and prejudices, he's an avowed atheist, as best as I could, I read books, interviewed experts, asked questions, analyzed history, explored archaeology, studied ancient literature, and for the first time in my life, picked apart the Bible verse by verse. He became a better Bible scholar than some of us. I plunged into this case with more vigor than with any story I had ever pursued as a journalist. I applied the training I received at Yale Law School as well as my experience as legal affairs editor at the Chicago Tribune. And over time, the evidence of the world, of history, of science, of philosophy, of psychology, the scientific evidence, what he could prove historically, what he could see, what he could know, began to point towards the unthinkable. So what has happened to him, what was his testimony, 
is that his wife's conversion to Christ and their, her increasing integrity and holiness launched him on a path to see if Jesus was real or not. In our text today, the main point of the text is make every effort to be holy. Make every effort to be holy. Now, holiness starts with God. Holiness refers to the condition of being devoted to God's purposes. Holiness refers to being separated from a common, everyday, ordinary, kind of sinful life being carried by your normal lusts and passions and actually being set aside for God's righteous, holy purposes. That's what holiness is. And it starts with God. And the way that it works is God pursues us with his love and goodness. The way that it works is through life and its ups and downs, God persuades us that we are a sinner who needs him. The way that it works is that we confess that he is Lord and Savior, repent of our sins, and he puts his Holy Spirit in us. The way that it works is that we are empowered to live a new life. Holiness starts with God. And it's holiness in this positional sense, the sense that we are in Christ, that allows God's call on us to be morally pure, to be morally excellent. Because we are in Christ, because we have this relationship that never ends, because we have his word, because we have this fellowship with the brothers, because we have these great promises that he won't leave us on the line in the, in the, in the, in the event that we, we mess up, that he'll never leave us for, nor forsake us, that he will forgive us of all our sins, that if we seek him first, he will provide us all things. Because he says that we will have an abundant life with him, because he says that we will have eternal life, amen, that, 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 that call to righteousness becomes more doable. And then he can say in 1 Peter 15 and 16, Peter's referring actually to um, Isaiah 57. He can say this, but just as he who called you is holy, Jesus, the perfect one, transcendent, creating God. So, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. And in 2 Peter 3 and 14, there's this, this text that says, make every effort to be spotless, to be blameless and at peace with God. And I want to tell you something. I have been a Christian for about 27 years. And when I honestly, in my quietest of quieted places, begin to assess myself in, in comparison with Jesus, I see a lot of spots and blemishes. In fact, I see some mud stains. Come on, talk back with me. And so when I see this kind of call, it makes me nervous. I say, man, how am I supposed to go about uh, doing this, right? And so today what I want to do is I want to, from this this text, I want to share with you, I want you to know if you are a Christian, that you can be more and more like Jesus. That you can have a clear conscience with Jesus, that as best as you can, that you obey him, that first of all, as best as you can, you love him with your whole heart and soul. That's where, that's where holiness starts, love Jesus. 
And secondarily, that you are at peace with Jesus, that you have repented of sins that you know of, confessing them not only to him, but to some of your best friends who can hold you accountable for being righteous. In our text, I want to to talk about these four things. I want to say this, that holiness is motivated by the Lord's return. That holiness develops through gracious striving. That holiness requires you to recognize the ungodly and their ways and teachings. And then lastly, that holiness requires you to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, this first point is gonna be the most important point and I'm gonna spend the most time on that. And the other three, I'm gonna make quickly. But here's what I want you to recognize. This call to holiness is rather serious. It's so serious that Peter mentions it two times in the first four verses of our text. He said, the day of the Lord is coming like a thief and you don't know when it's coming. Since everything's gonna be destroyed, he says, what kind of people ought you to be? He asks this this rhetorical question, then he answers it. You ought to live a holy and godly life as you look forward to the time, verse 13, where righteousness dwells. And then he says in verse 14, so then, dear brothers, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. And my wife and I, I was telling her, I was like, wifey, I'm having a really hard time writing this sermon. I said, wifey, it's it's taking me twice as much as long as I normally take to write a sermon. And whenever I experience that now, I've been preaching about 15 years, then I recognize that what God is doing is he's got to preach the sermon to me. He's got to chisel away at sin and and, and lack of knowledge in me before I can communicate it to you. Amen. So I've already been preached this sermon several different times. Amen. Holy and blameless. Holiness is motivated by the Lord's return. The greatest motivator for holiness is that you will see Jesus face to face and live with him. That's the greatest motivator for holiness. Revelations 21, 1 through 3. Then I saw, this is the Apostle John, writing at the end of the scriptures, a vision that he had received from God. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and they will be his God. And if you study that particular, if you're a student of the Old Testament and you study that phrase, God will be God and and, and we will be his people, that is a constant refrain of his. God has a yearning to be known and to live in fellowship with his people. That is how life was was intended to be. 
There wasn't intended to be bombings in Syria. There wasn't intended to be refugees all over the world. There wasn't intended to be strife among the races. There wasn't intended to be most of marriages falling apart. There wasn't intended to be increasing suicide rates among our young people. None of this stuff was the design of of God. What the design of God was that he would be our God and we would be his people. We would enjoy him and his righteous rule. There would be perfections in, in, in all things, in relationships, that brothers and sisters would really love each other. There, there would be no hatred. There would be no overconsumption that would cause uh, uh, the climate to be unstable. None of that was in the plan. And when God comes, he's going to restore the plan the way it was intended to be. The question is, are you looking forward to seeing Jesus face to face? Are you looking forward to the pure, or are you looking more forward to being a single person and having a husband? Are you looking more forward to playing golf this season? Are you looking forward to your retirement accounts increasing? Is your heart focused on spiritual things or godly things? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning. There'll be no more separation. There'll be, I'll be restored to to those who have gone before me who knew Jesus, family members. And in Deborah's and I case, a child. There'll be no more death and no more mourning. You know, when death comes in, the biggest problem it is, is it ends relationships until there's a return. That's the biggest thing when people die. The relationship changes in a way that you just can't repair on your own. No more death, no more pain. The old order has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And to these things we need to answer in our hearts. Yes, then, then come, Lord Jesus, come. I like the way David talks about this in in Psalm 27 and 4. He says this, one thing I have required of the Lord, that one thing I will seek, that I will dwell within the house of the Lord and behold the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. I, I look forward. Don't you know that Jesus is beautiful? Don't you know that eternity is spotless and pristine? Don't you know that the majesty and the glory of God is going to consume us? That we've never seen anything quite like it. And the best that we can get in this world is a glimpse of it through the Holy Spirit and the word, the word of God and a little bit of righteousness and, and peace that we can see that emanates in the church. That's the closest we can get. We haven't yet got to this perfection of seeing Jesus face to face. I'm looking forward to that time. And everyone who is a Christian ought to have that same aspiration. Make every effort to be holy. Holiness is motivated by the fact that you're gonna see Jesus face to face. Some songwriters help us with this. Help us get our minds right around this desire. I like the way Mercy Me talks about it. They say this, I can only imagine what it will be like when I walk by your side. I can only imagine what my eyes will see 
when your face is before me. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus? Or in all of you be still? Will I stand in your presence? Or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine. I wish I could sing. Oh, I'm a frustrated pastor who can't sing. But God has given me a good spiritual imagination. And I look forward to seeing Jesus face to face and being done with all my struggle against sin and all the damage that sin has brought into the world. Do you look forward to seeing Jesus? That's the greatest thing. The second thing is you should be motivated to be holy because holiness brings with it a a reward when he comes. Second Timothy 4, 8, Paul says this, he says, now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness with the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day of his coming. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Don't you know that Christians now, Christians, are going to be assessed by the the Lord for what they have done with the life that he's given them and the spiritual gifts that he's given. Christians. Now, you're not gonna be assessed for your salvation. You're gonna be assessed for the quality of your work. 2 Corinthians 5, 6, and 10, Paul says this, Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in this body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. Do you love Jesus so much that you make it your goal every day to please him? Is that your heart's desire? If that's your heart's desire, you are getting, you are becoming more and more like Jesus. You love him so much that it's not a chore. It's it's not a a great duty to want to be like your Savior. You want increased fellowship with him. You want to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is, this is where Christians are assessed. So that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. You recall last week that Pastor Nick talked about this notion of being a steward. Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30. The stewards were given some five bags of gold, three bags and one bag of gold, right? And I want to be the kind of steward that when Jesus returns, I run to him. You know, there's certain times of being a dad when, you're, when your sons, in my case, two sons, have done things that, that they're proud of, that as soon as I get home, they run up, Dad, Dad, here's an A. Dad, Dad, did you see this article in the paper? Dad, Dad, here's the letter from the school development sector. Dad, Dad, that's what I want to be. Dad, Dad, Jesus, I grew in holiness. Dad, Dad, I helped disciple some people. Dad, Dad, I grew in kindness and joy and love. Dad, Dad, people, people expressed appreciation for the service. I could, Dad, Dad, I'm becoming more like you. Dad, Dad, we need to be at this place where we are anticipating, 
where we come, Lord Jesus, because I'm doing such good things. I can't wait to show you what I've been up to with your life. That's the place that we need to be. And when I was assessing my life, I had to admit, I had to confess that there's certain things I don't want Jesus to see. There's certain things yet I need to clean up. And I have a, a sneaking suspicion that some of you are in the same camp. So it's not fear that should motivate you. It's the love of God that should compel you to be more like Jesus. We used to live in Westchester and my kids were really young. They would have gifts, toys and stuff. And I come home late from work and the toys would be on the lawn. And Westchester is not like Verona. In Verona, I can leave my garage open and nobody takes anything, man. They don't, everything stays. If that was in Chicago, I'd be cleaned out. But back here in Verona, I leave some. But back in Westchester, the same way. And they'd be leaving toys, and I'd be coming home, and be like, what are you doing with these gifts? Art, you should be playing with your gifts. You should be putting them away. You should be storing them up for tomorrow and inviting your friends. I want you to have these gifts and to use these gifts and share these gifts. And this is how it is with our Christian lives. We want to share Jesus. We wanna, we wanna treasure Jesus in us, share Jesus with the world, right? We want to be clean and spotless. We want to take, we want to use what God has given us to the best of our abilities. As we witness to people over lunch or at softball games or at the school board or in our businesses. And we want to be proud. And we want to run to Jesus to give an account. I don't want him poking around at my grades. I want to be able to come and say, this is what I've done with your life. Thirdly, we make effort, every effort to be holy because non-Christians are impacted. Second Corinthians 6, 3 and 6, Paul says this, he says, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. So not to put a stumbling block, look at what he does. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. You know, the thing that inspires me about Paul was that he didn't leave anything for granted in his life. He was concerned that every aspect of what he did was, was right before God, out of love for God. How many of us need to grow in that? In every way, through great endurance, going back to our text, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. This would be perseverance. In great endurance, in troubles and hardships and distresses and beatings, imprisonments and riots, in hard work and diligence, through sleepless nights and hunger. Look here, in purity, in understanding, growing in knowledge, in patience, right? In kindness, in sincere love. Those things should sound familiar to, to you. We've been preaching them this whole, this whole six, seven weeks. We've been remembering the, that in, in Scripture. And Second Peter says of this, he says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. One of the things uh, we may need to reclaim in our evangelical and Protestant faith is this notion of our priesthood before God. 
that we are holy, that we are set apart, that we are special. My wife and I will talk about this. Both of us have a, a little bit of a long background, quite frankly, in the Catholic faith tradition. And in Holy Week, one of the things they really do well is you get the sense that when you're talking about the death, burial, and resurrection that we are on holy ground. And some of it is because there's more, they have you know, costumes and they have vestments and, and so forth. Some of it is that. But some of it is just the way in which, the deportment in which they go about talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. What I'm trying to say is this. You are holy. And you ought not care, carry yourself carelessly. How you think, how you dress, how you talk, it matters to God because you are princes and princesses before God. That's something that we need to take more seriously. Because you've been called to, to declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage against your own soul. This is one of the reasons why we need to make every effort to be holy is because we're trying to protect our own soul. We're trying to stay out of bondage of sin. That's not in Jesus and that shouldn't be in us. And we're at war. Did you know that we're at war against sin? Did you know that? That's why we have the full armor of God, the blessed prayer of righteousness, right? The shield of faith, right? The sword of the word of God, the feet with the, uh, in the preparation of the gospel, the helmet of salvation. What I'm trying to say is that you're in a battle, that this is hard work. That's why Peter says, make every effort. The whole world works against God's righteousness. And if we're gonna succeed, we gotta use the resources that Jesus has given us and we've gotta learn how to use them skillfully. Like the Cubs when they play baseball. You know what I'm saying? Skill. No, no, okay. I digress. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits you. And so this is what Leslie Strobel did. She lived such a righteous life before her husband that at the end of his study, talking to 13 scholars in all kinds of fields, he was convinced of the historicity of Jesus, that he was real. But he needed not just the historicity, he needed the real personal example. And so when he looked at the, the record shows that Jesus is real, then he looked at his wife and said, Jesus is real. Come on, talk back with me. How many of our friends and family and relatives can look at us and honestly say, because of their life, I know that I need to take this seriously. And so this is what happened. Now this guy who used to be an investigative reporter and a vowed and studied atheist is now a pastor in Texas. And now a seminary professor, an apologetics professor at Houston Baptist Theater. And not only that, his son now, right? His son teaches at Talbot, he's a theologian. And his daughter has written six Christian books. Uh, Leslie Strobel's godliness led her whole family to Jesus Christ. 
And that's what we want. And that's what holiness can do. But ungodliness won't do that. Just saying you're a Christian and being caught up in the evil desires of lust, that won't get it done. That will get us scorned. That will get us called hypocrites. That we need to avoid. That's not Christ. But God is waiting patiently for everyone he has elected to come to faith and holiness. That Christians display in sharing our faith and in clearly adorning his message through our godly lives. God is waiting, and he's not just waiting for the gospel to get to the, the, the whatever that, that window is that, that where, where the word hasn't reached yet. Right? He's not just waiting for that. He's waiting for us profession, professing Christians to live like real Christians. He, he's waiting for us to grow in holiness too so that when we come, we will be glad and we will be at peace when he returns. He's waiting for both of those things. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. And do not forget this one thing, that his slackness is just an attempt to wait so that all that he has called to salvation will come. And so holiness is motivated by Christ's return. We look forward to seeing Jesus and living with him. We recognize that moral excellence is rewarded by Jesus Christ. I didn't get a chance to unpack it, but it brings personal benefits to us in terms of our spiritual health, our physical health, our emotional health, holiness, in addition to, to being an example for others. So that's the first point. That's the most important thing I want you to get are the motivations for holiness. These next three points I'm going to move through relatively quickly. They are important. I want you to get them, but I really wanted you to get that first point. How we should be motivated to love Jesus and be like Jesus. That's what I really wanted you to get. Next three points rather quickly. Holiness develops through gracious striving. I don't have to preach this as much because Nick has preached this in his first sermon. John MacArthur, I like the way he talks about it. He says this, he says, when the Lord comes, he wants us to be pure. How can you be that way? That was my question when I started this study. How, how does this work? No, you have to discern your sin. Some of us need to take a journal to look at our habitual sins. Not so much the ones that you just commit from time to time by omission or commission, but they're not, they, they have no power over you. You can quickly confess them and get, I'm talking about the ones that are trying to get rooted in your soul. You need to take a, your diary and you need to write those down so that you can understand the tempting situations that, that the, the devil is putting before you to keep you in that spot, right? So MacArthur is saying, you got to pay attention to how sin is in, is works particularly in your life. You got to pay attention to that. You got to, you got to hate that sin and you've got to do everything you can to get away from it. Be faithful in the means of grace, the spiritual means of Bible study. If you are a Christian 
and you have not yet learned how to read the Bible for yourself, you are without excuse. Every week almost, we have men and women who are faithfully teaching people how to study and learn the Bible for themselves. You, that is, the Word of God is our pure gold. You've got to know how to, how to understand the Bible for yourself. Prayer and worship so that you can maintain a pure life. The Lord says, that's how I want you to live until I come, and that's, and that's consistent with what you are anticipating in the eternal state. If I am destined for eternal purity, if I am destined for eternal glory, I ought to seek to live that way right now. So think about this. Pay attention. Brothers and sisters, discern your sin. Brothers and sisters, know the tempting situations you need to stay out of. Brothers and sisters, be serious about your devotional life. Be serious about obedience. Nick said it like this. He said, stay focused on how, not how you're doing your activity, but what God has done, is doing, and will do. He says, stay focused on the fact that God has multiplied grace and peace. Stay focused on the fact that you, hate, you have given, given you everything we need. There's certain sins, like I'll be praying to God, and I'll be like, God, take this sin away. And God will be like, no, you stay away from the sin. The problem isn't that I got to take something away. The problem is you got to get away. Come on, talk with me. So for 30 years I've been praying, take me away. No, he's not going to answer that one. The answer is you go over here. You confess the sin to your brother. You have your brother pray for you. You be accountable when you fall in. You take notes of what the habitual sins are. You hate the sin and God will deliver you. Through gracious striving, God will deliver. He wants your freedom. He wants you to hate sin and love righteousness. Escape the corruption in the world. He wants you to partake in real virtue, real love, real knowledge, real perseverance, real godliness. He wants you to be fruitful and productive. He wants you, as you apply these things, to have a peace and an assurance that you are in Christ until he returns when you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom. That's what Jesus wants for you. And so like the toys on the lawn, pick them up and start working them in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus has given us everything we need so we live it out in the power he gave us. So make every effort to be holy. Holiness is motivated by the Lord's return. Holiness develops through gracious striving, through the Holy Spirit in us, and the work of the church, the church he has given us, and our obedience is how we grow. Holiness requires you to recognize the ways of the ungodly teachers and steer clear of them. I like, this is Jesus speaking here. This is right near the very end of the Bible. Here's what Jesus says. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll, if anyone adds anything to the scripture, God will add to that person the plagues described in the revelations. Those are some nasty uh, plagues. I don't, wanna, I don't have time to go through them. Let's just say 
hell, fire and brimstone. Let's just say that, fire, fire, okay? And if anyone takes words away from this scroll of the prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in the scroll. And so the biggest pressure, even amongst orthodox godly preachers, is to take away something because the world doesn't want to hear it anymore or to add something. These are two of the biggest pressures, even on pastors like me. People don't want to hear about holiness anymore. Especially if it has to do with their sexuality. Especially if it has to do with their personal preference on how they want to deport their lives. Nobody want to hear that. And so the temptation amongst pastors is, oh, when I get to that part of Colossians chapter 3, I think I'll skip over verses 5 through 7. Nobody wants to hear that. And I'll just skip to 8, 9, 10. No. We do not take away and we do not add to. That is the sign of a false prophet. The false prophet is motivated by greed, by power, and by lust. The scoffers want to doubt that Jesus, the miracles of God, especially that he's going to return. You're, you're forewarned. Remind yourself of these things and you'll avoid the error of the scoffers. I like the way John Chrysostom talks about this in his book uh, on the priesthood. He's an early church father. In adopting the best possible way of life, you may be spurred on to emulate by someone else's example. But when it comes to false teaching that the soul is suffering from, the word of the scripture is urgently needed, not only for the safety of church members, but to meet the attack of the outsiders, the sword of the spirit. We must take great care, therefore, that the word of Christ dwell in us richly, which is why I said it is malpractice on your, old soul, your own soul not to be able to read and understand the Bible for yourself if you are a Christian. It is malpractice. If you are a Christian and you have not disciplined yourself to be at church every time that you're in town, you're malpractice for your soul. If you are a Christian and you have not disciplined yourself to hate sin and love righteousness, malpractice for your soul. Christ must dwell in us richly, St. John Chrysostom. Make every effort, it's motivated by the Lord's return. It develops through gracious striving. It requires us to know the ways of the ungodly and stay away from them. And fourthly, it increases as you grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Peter said this, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And being a Christian is like riding a bike. As soon as you stop pedaling, you fall off. You gotta constantly be in motion. You, you need to constantly be growing. Peter said this, he says, 1 Peter 2, 2, as babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow by it. You see, right now, we all exist in the sphere of grace. 
And some of you are headed towards the mission field. Some of you are headed towards school at the UW or MATC tomorrow. Others are going to work. And as you try to live out your Christian life, you are operating in the sphere of grace, which is that you try to apply faith, goodness, knowledge, self-control, etc., to the best of your ability. And when you sin, God is faithful to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all anxiety. But in the midst of that, you are fully participating in growing in the grace, growing in the word of Jesus Christ. You need to grow in it word, and you need to grow in Jesus experientially. That through certain obedience and through persecution and through just difficulties and through the dying of, of friends and family, you become to know Jesus as more precious through your life. That's what he's saying. Through life's experience, through being a godly boss, through being a godly wife, through being single and satisfied and holy, right? Through everyday circumstances is how you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Not accidentally, by applying yourself to the word, by applying yourself to fellowship, by applying yourself to repentance through prayer, through gracious striving, you grow. And when you do that, we need, uh, I like the way Nick talks about this. He talks about the ordinary humdrum life of a Christian and learning how to be substantial. We don't need super Christians in super situations. We need to learn how to be righteous right where we are. Through a basic disciplined life. Because when we do that, we bring him glory. God is pleased with the ordinary life lived well. Holiness is motivated by the Lord's return. First thing, make every effort to be holy. He's given you everything you need. Now we need to make every effort. It develops through grace's striving. It requires you to know what ungodliness is and to stay out of it. And it increases as you grow. And so I got one last question for you, and worship team, you can make your way to the, up to the front right now. I got one last question for you. What specific steps have you taken to ensure your progress in godliness? The, the elders of the church had a breakthrough in our last two elder meetings. Here was our breakthrough we began to confess our sins to one another and pray that God would heal us. I mean, not the itty bitty sins, but the ones that we hated, the ugly ones that nobody knew about. The ones that we didn't have to confess because they were kind of just between us and Jesus. The elders were like, no, God is, is inspired me, prompted me to confess to you. And brother, pray for me. 
And I did something I never have done before. I told my very best Christian friend about a sin that I had had for a long time. I said, man, I've been struggling with this and I've been so ashamed and not, and not willing to tell anybody, but I'm telling you. And I said, all I want you to do is just pray for me. And he prayed for me and then he said, now Lloyd, he said, I gotta tell you one. Very similar to the one I told him about. And so now I have somebody to hold me accountable and to pray. Here's my question for you. What are you doing to grow in holiness? Because God expects you to be blameless and spotless and a clear conscience before him. What are you doing? What are you doing? We, we spent eight different sermons on this subject. What are you doing to grow in godliness? Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we, uh, we thank you for uh, this tough word from Peter. The tough word, Lord, but full of hope. Full of hope because that's what you're all about. Because of Jesus and what you've done and the power you've put in us, you've given us victory over sin. Now, Father, we've got to just apply our hearts to love you. Apply our hearts to obedience. Apply our hearts to purity. And Lord, we know it's possible. You wouldn't ask it of us if we weren't able to do it. And when we stumble, you pick us up. You say to us, just confess. Confess to you, confess to one another, and we will be healed. Confession heals us, Lord. Prayer heals us. Let us be that for each other. Let us pray for our brother and sister that they be healed. Let us love your word like we love our daily food, more than we love our daily food. May we love your word. May we allow it to change our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.